point. We're living in a, you know, a modern age of uh, the new psychedelic renaissance. And I thought, this is this is not real. This is uh, uh, my gosh! I'm on the radio. People hear me. You know what we do with our time here on the planet, and uh, you know how we give to others and affect others' lives, and uh, what we do with it is important. Oh, wait a minute! I didn't know that's the direction we were going. <laughs> That every major spiritual tradition says, you know, the kingdom of heaven is within. It's about what makes you happy and satisfied. Like you said, like you just said, you have to be able to control it. You can't let it control you. Always part of me wanted an audience. It's naive to think that human beings have stopped evolving. The, the world is a very rich place if you start exploring. Okay. So... So welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, today I am joined by Dan McCrory, who uh, I'll just I'll just let you introduce yourself. Uh. Okay, um, I uh, am a writer. I'm a, an officer of the National Writers Union, and I was uh, with the Communication Workers of America for 37 years, uh, working at AT and T, and I eventually rose up to the rank of uh, local president, and uh, I ran for office, and I tried to find ways to reach out to the next generation to let them know what was coming at them. The gig economy, universal basic income, all those kinds of things. And so I wrote a book about it called Capitalism Killed the Middle Class. Mm -hmm. Okay, um, so to kick things off here, I wanted to start out with a poem that I thought was relevant. Uh, it's called a United Fruit Company by, by the Chilean poet Pablo Neruda. Neruda. Um, and uh, this is a translation into English here, just you know, to make sure everyone understands what it is. So it goes, when the trumpet sounded, it was all prepared on the earth and Jehovah parceled out the earth to Coca-Cola Incorporated, Anaconda, Ford Motors and other entities. The fruit company incorporated reserved for itself the most succulent, the central coast of my own land, the delicate waste of America, it rebaptized its territories as the banana republics and over the sleeping dead, over the unquiet heroes who brought greatness, liberty, and flags. It established the comic opera, alienated free will, presented crowns of Caesar, unsheathed envy, attracted the dictatorship of the flies, Trujillo flies, Tacho flies, Carillas flies, Martinez flies, Ubico flies, flies moist of humble blood and marmalade, drunken flies who buzz over the graves of the people. Circus flies, wise flies, expert at tyranny. Among the bloodthirsty flies, the fruit company disembarks, amassed coffee and fruit in ships which put to sea, like trays with treasures from our from our submerged lands. Meanwhile, falling into sugared abysses of the parts, fall Indians buried in the morning mist. A, a body rolls, a thing without a name, a discarded number, a bunch of dead fruit cast out on the garbage heap. Wow, that's pretty uh, powerful stuff. Yes, it's a, it's a pretty famous quote from, uh, of course, the, the real company, the United Fruit Company, which is an uh, American uh, place that was located down, you know, South America, especially with bananas and yep. stuff. So um, I'm just wondering if you, had, if you had any thoughts about that or... or... Uh, I think that... Uh... Uh, names names it uh, nails down uh, the uh, the U.S. imperialism that we've come to know that uh, hides behind the uh, the mask of corporations and mm -hmm. uh, it has uh, made us um, a laughingstock and and much hated in a lot of parts of the world. Yeah, that's a problem. So with these corporations that you know they go down and you know uh, and I think he brilliantly wrote a kind of. Uh, mockingly, like in the way that he mentions, you know, uh, the, the corporation itself, you know, rebaptize these territories and, you know, as if it was some uh, divine ordinance, you know, like uh, it says Jehovah parceled out the earth to, all these, to like all these different companies and stuff. So um, I wanted to get into your book first. Um, okay. Which was uh, Capitalism Killed the Middle Class. Um, so what was, what was your main uh, inspiration uh, behind that book? It started out as a memoir, and um, because I spent 37 years at AT and T and went through the whole breakup of the phone company and all that stuff. Before that, it was like being in the womb of uh, we used to call her Ma Bell, and uh, I saw how 
things had been torn apart and then Reagan comes along and, and uh, ruins uh, air traffic controller union. And uh, we didn't know how far he was going to take it. So um, I, I lived through those times and I wanted to tell the next generations coming along what they were in for because uh, uh, one of the parts, chapter four of my book talks about something called the uh, Powell Memo. And a lot of people may not be aware of it, but it was a blueprint written by a guy who later became a Supreme Court Justice, Lewis Powell, that talks about how um, all the hippies and the uh, activists were against uh, our form of government because of the Vietnam War for a uh, major reason. And uh, he put together a blueprint for business to take over the conversation and uh, they've been very successful in that. In fact, I just uh, recently uh, gutted that whole thing and rewrote it from a perspective of labor and sent it to uh, the FLCIO. And I've heard some reactions so far, but um, I realized that uh, the memoir wasn't gonna do it uh, because uh, I, I, uh, to your generation, I may not have a lot of relevancy. So I had to uh, do my research and I looked into the things, as I mentioned before about universal basic income, the gig economy, all the kinds of things. And um, I'm actually writing a sequel that talks about the jobs of the future because a lot of the jobs that are here today aren't gonna be here tomorrow. And the pandemic has, has made a real evidence of that. So um, I ran for political office, didn't have a chance because uh, they went with the status quo. So I saw this as my last opportunity to give you guys a fair warning about what's coming down. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So one thing that I that I like about you know universal basic income is you know it increases uh, the freedom that people have. That's one reason that you know people like Andrew Yang call it the freedom dividend because you know unlike other forms of welfare, you know uh, instead of just saying here's here's a here's a, a sum of money here you can use it for this or this, but you know this allows people to you know different people have different needs and maybe maybe they're already getting assistance in one form from you know family charity whatever. But then the UBI, it gives them it gives them that freedom. So maybe uh, maybe it gives them the chance to uh, send their kids to a better school. Maybe they can start a new business. They can do whatever, uh, and they, well, you they know, can pursue thing, artistic. An interesting thing about that. Sorry to interrupt. Um, universal basic income was um, touted by the Nixon White House. Nixon <laughs> wanted to do it, and they said no. Everybody's going to call it welfare for all. So. You don't want to go down that path, so mm -hmm. he immediately uh, stopped any uh, motions in that direction. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there have been a lot of different, very prominent people on both sides of the aisle that have supported, including Nixon, including uh, Milton Freeman. Uh, I think it was Thomas Paine, uh, Martin Luther King Jr., uh, uh, Charles Murray, uh, Andrew Yang, of course. I think even Barack Obama's uh, has mentioned support for it. Hmm. I didn't know that. In fact, there's a you know, it's, there's actually a number of libertarians that actually support just because of, as an alternative to other forms of welfare, just because, you know, um, I've seen the argument where one, one thing that people don't like about regular, uh, regular uh, welfare is that what happens is you're, uh, let's say you're in low income housing and it normally what happens is be, you're, you're in that low income housing because you, you make, you don't make enough income. And, and if you were able to get, you know, a higher paying job, or maybe you don't have a job at all, um, that would increase your income and you wouldn't be able to live there anymore. So what universal basic income is because it's universal, it's, it goes out to everybody um, and it allows them to, it gives them more of an incentive to go out and, you know, be more productive with, you know, you know, get a better job, get more education, uh, start a business, pursue your artistic endeavors. Exactly. It's been tried in Stockton, California, and it's been fairly successful. Uh, they had a lady on NPR talk about how she had been uh, up to here with her bills, and that allowed her to get out from under those bills and to actually start building an nest egg again. So, yeah, it's a salvation for a lot of folks, and I hope it uh, spreads widely. In Finland, when they tried it there, there was a very conservative union that was totally against it. They said it uh, made people dependent on the government, which is the mm -hmm. whole argument about welfare. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and uh, and uh, Alaska has a, a form of it uh, from yeah. the from the oil there, and people are yep. you know they're, they're very happy with that. Yes, you know they can take in they can maybe go go out to a movie or something, and you know it's just a way that 
you know, gives people that little bit of extra money and then eventually it actually contributes to economic well-being uh, because, you know, it, it goes into the economy and circulates throughout. Right. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned the gig economy. So do you want to just explain what that is a little bit for this? Well, they call it the sharing economy. They come up with all sorts of names to, to justify it. But um, one of the uh, efforts here in, in California has been to uh, stop the exploitation of workers who um, get into the gig economy to make some extra money. It's a side hustle for a lot of folks. Teachers are doing it, all sorts of people. And um, they like the freedom of it. But what they don't realize is that a lot of costs are being put on their backs by the companies like Lyft and Uber. Mm -hmm. And we had a, um, uh, the legislature here uh, tried to um, narrow the scope of uh, the gig economy and uh, Uber and Lyft uh, fought it tooth and nail and they lost in the legislature. So they, they uh, created an initiative uh, here in California to get it overturned and they were successful. So now they're going to be going on to New York other places where Uber and Lyft are very successful to try to make sure that uh, those employees don't get um, um, any kind of health care, any kind of uh, um, unemployment insurance, all that kind of stuff that, that we that have regular structured jobs take for granted. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and the gig economy is, you know, things like Airbnb, like Uber, Lyft, those kind of things. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so, um, well, I want to get a little bit into uh, your your background. Like, what's what, what's something that really uh, inspired you into you know some of these uh, into your, these progressive causes, and you know what uh, push you what pushes you forward? Well, to tell you the truth, the first thing that uh, I was I grew up dirt poor in this small town in Texas, and I got to move to Colorado to live with my grandmother and my great grandfather and live a middle class existence. And that uh, gave me a glimpse of what could be. And then I, um, my grandmother said, go uh, apply for the phone company uh, right after I graduated high school. So I went there and, and uh, I found myself uh, catapulted into the middle class solidly then because I was making a decent union wage. And uh, so I wanted to find out more about the union. So I got uh, more and more involved in the union. So um, the union, um, it has some drawbacks to it. It needs to be restructured for the, uh, the jobs of tomorrow, but uh, it has uh, allowed me to uh, be able to stop worrying about day-to-day -day life and, and uh, uh, have some kind of control over my own destiny. And so I've, uh, I've tried to get back to it um, over and over again in any way I can. Mm -hmm. So did that answer your question? Uh, yeah. And, you know, see, so so you worked at AT and T for years. Um, how has how has this influenced uh, your current thinking on the state of uh, the country? Uh, well, um, it it was a mixed blessing because uh, the uh, lawsuit that that spurred the breakup of the phone company in the eighties was caused by a company called MCI WorldCom, which was another long distance company. And what's interesting is uh, by the time the company was broken up. MCI was gone under. So they never saw the day when uh, they're vindicated for their choice in, in filing a lawsuit against this oligarchy. And uh, for us on the inside, it uh, looked like an attack because uh, the phone company had always been a place where your mother came to work and then her daughter would work there. And, and it, it turned into dynasties for a lot of families and it created a sense of um, um, security. Uh, even the, our stocks at the time were called uh, the, uh, the widow's fund because it allowed uh, a steady, slow growth. It was steady and slow, but uh, when uh, competition came in, uh, in the form of other companies, uh, all of a sudden it was a whole new world and a lot of us uh, were not prepared for that. So, uh, but I, I think that um, it, in the long run, it has helped and uh, bring a uh, spurring innovation and uh, creating all sorts of things. I mean, we talked about picture phones back in the early 60s at the World's Fair, and but it wasn't until the breakup of the phone company that we were actually able to see that uh, realized. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, 
you know, getting into into more uh, contemporary politics, I was wondering uh, what what your thoughts are with uh, you know the game stock uh, stocks with what happened there. Uh, do you have any thoughts on that with the hedge funds and? It certainly shows that uh, uh, manipulating the market is not as hard as people think it is, mm -hmm. and uh, I, I'm afraid that uh, we're going to see more of that every mm -hmm. time that we we think we've uh, we've plugged all the the chinks in the wall that uh, people can get through and exploit the system, they find other creative ways to do just that. And uh, uh, it's it's a constant struggle with capitalism that we have to um, keep coming back to, uh, to to figure out ways to to uh, overcome uh, human ingenuity. Mm -hmm. through yeah, um, I think it's a really interesting case uh, because you know, it, you know, it's an example of people that were, you know, fed up with some of these people, these hedge fund managers and people that uh, manipulate the economy and, you know, they, they bet against stocks that they don't like. And, um, you know, it's just a way that they kind of, you know, stuck it to them, you know. And exactly. um, I think we'll, we'll probably be seeing uh, a lot more of that uh, uh, in, the, in, the, in the future. Yeah, I'm not sure that uh, that's the right approach, but mm -hmm. it is an approach and it got people's attention. So, uh, maybe it is. I don't know. Uh, the time will tell us, won't it? Uh, I thought I thought it was a, a a pretty ironic thing where after it after it happened on CNBC, they brought on a hedge fund manager, and you know he was calling for uh, more regulation when normally these people normally be calling for less regulation. Exactly. Yeah, it was ironic as hell. They want they they want regulation when it's when it benefits them, but not when it benefit when it benefits others. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so is there, are, are there any uh, figures or, or even just movements that you see currently in the political trends that, uh, that motivate you that, that are, you see positively here? Uh, yes, I, I think your generation understands that uh, unions are a no brainer that uh, uh, in order to have a secure future, uh, whether it's healthcare or or just uh, knowing you have a job, you your generation realizes that this is something that's a, a necessary thing. Um, I'm working on, as I mentioned, I'm working on a sequel called Rebuilding Union. And uh, what that's looking at is what has labor done in the past that's uh, helped the middle class and what have they done that hasn't and how can we adapt for the future? Mm -hmm. And um, one of the things I, I was uh, dissatisfied with uh, with the labor movement is uh, when I ran for office myself, I uh, went to different unions and they would pat me on the back and say, good, we're glad you're running and all this. But they'd turn around, I was running against, and I ran twice, and both times I ran against a staff person for a congress congressman. And uh, even though they, they uh, welcomed me into the fold, they would, they inevitably, back the status quo candidate, the person who uh, worked for the congressman. Uh, on one, on the practical side, that's understandable because if you please the, the congressman and they get elected, then uh, that's going to make that relationship even stronger. Whereas if you backed me, uh, if you even if you didn't back me and I, by some slim chance I got in and got elected, they w knew that I would vote the right way because I came from, from labor. So, um, but we're never going to change the system if we're always uh, in the uh, back of the car instead of driving. Mm -hmm. Yeah, union, unions are important. They, they bring a lot of good to this world. Um, and, you know, a lot of people, they might criticize unions for, for some things. And, you know, they're made up of people. They're, they're flawed. But, you know, they're, they're an important part. And, you know, they're important part, especially in a lot of European countries, like, you know, countries like Denmark, Sweden. They don't even, they don't actually have minimum wages there, but they have strong unions that, effectively make minimum wages for different sectors. Uh, and of course they increase the- and Negotiate directly with the government mm -hmm. rather than through employers, which exactly. is a, a form of power that uh, they've been given. Mm -hmm. France is having all sorts of problems with that though, because mm -hmm. a lot of people have, uh, they've been victims of their own success uh, and the Yellow Vest movement and all that um, has pointed that out because um, not many people are joining unions anymore. and. Uh, so they're lo losing some of that leverage and that's what we're seeing in this country too. So mm -hmm. that's why we need to get back to uh, the basics, I think. We need to look at maybe our socialist roots in the labor movement 
to sort of uh, counterbalance the unfettered capitalism that we see on the corporate side. Mm -hmm. uh, are there any, uh, you know, quick solutions that you, that you can see to some of our problems that could very easily be implemented uh, in the near future? Well, there's the PRO Act. Um, Pro, the PRO Act uh, is being considered by Congress right now to uh, allow um, uh, more leverage uh, for uh, unions to be able to come in and get uh, so many um, card, it's called card check, where you get 50% uh, plus one of the workforce to say, yes, we want the union here. And uh, that would level the playing field uh, in a big way in the beginning. Bernie Sanders has some great ideas. He wants to make it uh, that uh, employees of a particular corporation uh, own uh, up to 20% of the stock of that corporation. Mm -hmm. And 45% uh, of the board seats on the board of directors for each corporation would be by held by employees. And that would give us a voice that we've never had before and more insight into how they make these decisions that affect so many and uh, like downsizings and things like that. We need to, uh, to make them realize how much it affects uh, the, the middle and working classes to, uh, to, for them to make these, uh, what sometimes seems like uh, unilateral decisions that uh, ruin people's lives. And if we could do that, then uh, we can move back towards, uh, as I said, being in the driver's seat because this uh, the middle class is, is is the backbone of this country. We're the ones that pay the taxes. The rich don't pay taxes. Mm -hmm. The poor can't pay taxes because they don't make enough. So mm -hmm. who's left to pay taxes? Us. And yep. if we don't have a say-so in how that money is spent, then um, the corporations, again, are in charge and they're running things, much like the banana republics that you talked about in that poem. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, as a form of, of, of taxes, what do you think about like a value added tax? Uh, you know, like a lot of other countries have. Like we're, we're one of the few that doesn't have one. That, that's worked pretty well, but uh, what's interesting, uh, I've been to Scotland and paid it there, paid it in Holland. And I realized that uh, uh, for locals, they have all sorts of ways to get out of paying that tax. Mm -hmm. So really it's a tax on tourists that are coming to their, uh, their country because you don't have that opportunity to to uh, sort of make it back. Mm -hmm. um, I also, also did it in Thailand. And uh, it's, it's a good way to raise some extra funds. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, I, I don't know, I, uh, we could try it. We, mm -hmm. we definitely could try it. Yeah, like, um, like one thing Andrew Yanks proposes is to do a value added tax on, you know, on online sales, especially like on Amazon, on, you know, Facebook ads, uh, or not just ads in general, but uh, not just Facebook in general, but all sorts of online ads, um, Great as, idea. Well, as well as because you know they they use our they use our data to in, improve their algorithms and stuff. So you know it's a so, so uh, also give us more more say with what they do with our our data. And you know about the Robinhood tax, right? The Robin oh oh they tax Robinhood. They, no, they, 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 uh, it's been brought up numerous times over the last couple of decades. What it would do is. Uh, put a, a, a tax of 0 0.01 cents on each stock transaction. Mm -hmm. Okay. So those of us who do little stock trades, it wouldn't really affect us very much. Mm -hmm. But for these big stock brokerages, mm -hmm. it would uh, I mean major money going into the coffers of our uh, country. So mm -hmm. I think it would really help also. So it generally wouldn't affect like the Wall Street bets crowd, you know, as much. It'd be more more the big you know hedge funds and those guys exactly. yeah yes. okay um i wanted to also get into your novel so do you want to just uh, describe what that's about or? it's called you will forever be my always and uh i have parkinson's disease and mm -hmm. uh, i've had it for about uh i was diagnosed about five years ago and it's about this character who's a philanderer and his he's so obnoxious his friends have pretty much uh given up on him and uh, he decides once he finds out he has Parkinson's, he's convinced that he's going to die. So he tries to make it up to everybody. He tries to make it up to his wife. In the meantime, his wife uh, has an operation to uh, a breast reduction, which throws him into a fit. And he decides he's going to leave the country and, and uh, figure this all out. So he goes to Thailand and he goes to uh, Morocco. And everywhere he goes, he talks to 
um, uh, he talks to a Catholic priest, he talks to a, a Muslim uh, imam, he talks to uh, all these different people from different uh, uh, faiths to try to figure out how is he going to redeem himself with his friends, with his wife, and make and, and make his way to his version of heaven, I guess. And uh, so um, it, it takes him, to, like I said, Thailand, uh, Morocco, both of which I've, I've been to and and uh, uh, on numerous occasions, and also to Central Texas, which is uh, kind of where I grew up. And uh, he, uh, by the end of the book, he, uh, well, you'll have to read the book, but uh, it, uh, it's a little graphic sexually uh, in the first couple of chapters because I'm, I was trying to paint the, the fact that, that he has uh, no moral compass. Mm -hmm. And eventually he acquires one and, uh, and, and uh, changes for the better, I think. Yeah, so um, uh, it, are there any uh, ties that you can tie between this and also your, uh, and also any of the themes within your, your book, uh, Capitalism, Capitalism Killed the Middle Class? Are there any political well, themes in there? Uh, yeah, there's, well, there's a, a joke in there because he, um, in the progression of Parkinson's disease, uh, it affects your balance. You fall over. And, and, and uh, a lot, and I, I'm starting to do that now. Mm -hmm. And on, on one occasion in the book, he uh, has to start using a cane. And he says that uh, because, because of the cane, he's leaning to the right. So it causes all sorts of political jokes about him uh, being uh, leaning to the right now. But, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but um, no, I, I never really uh, tied those two together, but uh, I'll have to go back and read my own book now to see if, the, if there is some kind of at least implied um, political um, mm -hmm. statement in there. But uh, I know uh, there's the politics of religion, if you, if you, if you want to go there, uh, because mm -hmm. uh, uh, when he goes to uh, a, uh, uh, in Thailand, he goes to a temple and he talks to this guy. He wants to talk to somebody in English because he wants to know about the, the uh, Buddhist religion that's practiced there. And the guy that they set him up with is somebody who came from the states and he makes a habit of of learning about different forms of buddhism so he takes him on this tour and then uh, he says uh, charlie the main character says so this is this is the buddhism that you think is gonna uh, be the one and he says he says i don't know 64 million ties think so but uh, next week i'm going to tibet so uh it, it's uh, there's so much politics because again Religion is a human institution, so you're going to have some of that in there. Sure, sure. But thanks um, for bringing. Yeah. So you mentioned in here um, that uh, you discovered a, a link between meds and creativity. Uh, do you want to go into that? Or? Uh, yeah, I was. Um, lately, I've been waking up a lot in the middle of the night with ideas uh, for stories, for scripts. Uh, you name it, I've written it, and uh, I was. I was getting tired of being awakened by my brain in the middle of the night. So I said, what's going on here? And I, Googled, I sat on the edge of the bed and Googled creativity and Parkinson's. And I found an article from uh, uh, an Asian medical journey journal that says that 20% um, of people who take this one drug is called levodopa experience of this upsurge of, of creativity. And I found that fascinating. And uh, I've, uh, it almost encourages you to overdose of the medicine but, <laughs> because you're trying to reach that, that level. But it's it's funny because I've found that uh, uh, the way I structure my sentences, the way I uh, think, is some, it just like it falls into place. So um, I'm really thankful that uh, I can actually see some silver lining in this cloud of having this incurable disease. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um... And you know, it's it's interesting the thoughts that you come up with when when you're just half asleep or something. Like you know, I remember not too long ago, I was laying down and I got like this song idea as I was just like half asleep, and like it wasn't like much of an idea. It was just like a a few seconds, and so I quickly like grabbed my phone and just recorded myself like singing into it, um, just to, uh, just so I could remember it in the morning. But it was, it was something I'll probably try to get do something with that sometime. Um, well, back in but, the um, diagnosis, I, I did that sort of thing. I, I would wake up and 
jot down a note or something like that from a dream or whatever. Mm -hmm. And nine times out of 10, I'd look at it the next morning and say, what the hell is this? Mm -hmm. So it doesn't always pay off, but mm -hmm. um, I, I, you're right. It's, it's, a, it's a great way to at least spur things so that you can remember and, and maybe use it as a launching point for something. Yeah. Um, I, I'm also reminded of, uh, are you aware of the, the show, The Queen's Gambit? Oh yeah. It was a, yeah. So, you know, and she, you know, she was taking some, some tranquilizers and, you know, and increased, you know, her creativity and the way she could play chess, you know, but, you know, it just reminds me of that. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. It's an interesting movie. I'm uh, taking a class right now called creating uh binge worthy TV. And it mm -hmm. talks about uh, uh, how, uh, having strong characters. And what I've realized is that, um, this whole new movement towards binge-worthy TV has a lot of basis in films that are based on books because the characters seem so much more rich, so much there's so much more depth to them, and so that's basically what binge-worthy TV is. It's it's having you build a backstory, having you really flesh out the character rather than just episodic TV like Seinfeld or whatever. Mm -hmm. got mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, there's there's something about some of those dramas in there where like there's so many there's so many different rich sides and you know they're so complex and then it changes and you're never quite sure what's going to happen and maybe maybe you think you'll know what'll happen but it's it's almost never exactly what you think. Yeah, and I love TV like that because mm -hmm. uh, because of all the training I've had in, in writing scripts, uh, I'll sit and watch most shows with my wife and she gets really upset with me because I'll say, oh, this is going to happen and then it happens. This is going to happen, then it happens. And, and I mean, it's so by the numbers. And to, uh, to be a real creative enterprise, it shouldn't be so predictable. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, do you try to use any of these creative strategies when you're writing, uh, you know, your, your political book as well? Or uh, Yeah, uh, because um, you, you have to, uh, I hate to use a, an old hackneyed expression, but you have to think outside the box. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you come at it the same way, then uh, people are not going to get excited. Uh, one of the things I did when I was writing Capitalism was I, I would uh, be writing and I'd say, God, this is boring. So then I know that uh, stop now. You need to stop and re either rewrite it in a way that's more interesting or it's time to move on to the next subject. Mm -hmm. uh, um, that uh, has really uh, come in handy. Um, and uh, I will continue to always uh, use it because um, to uh, write something that somebody else has, has already written is not the whole purpose of creativity. It's, it's uh, expanding our, our horizons. It's uh, looking at things in a different way. Mm -hmm. um, you know, with any of your writing or any of these endeavors that you've gone on, uh, is there, uh, was there any role for like, uh, you know, spontane, I want to say spontaneity, um, more, um, you know, uh, uh, imp not improvisation, um, you know, just kind of, you know, riffing up anything, you know, uh, you know, just kind of going, going with the flow and, you know, just seeing where it takes you. Uh, well, that's interesting. You should bring that up. Uh, there's, they say there's two kinds of writers. There's a writer that plots everything out with outlines and and it's going to have this is going to happen and this is going to happen and this is going to happen uh, my book uh, the uh the, the novel um it, uh, it established me as something that we call a pantser and that's flying by the seat of your pants so uh what you do is you write yourself paint yourself into a corner and say okay character get out of that situation mm -hmm. and it forces you to think and do in different ways on how you're going to uh, rescue that particular character Mm -hmm. So um, I, I, I like to uh, plot more when I do my nonfiction because I'm looking for a particular direction. Uh, I'm trying to establish a premise. Uh, here's mm -hmm. my original thought, and this is how I'm backing it up. Whereas with uh, fiction, you've got a little more freedom to move around and explore different things. Um, one of the things, a lot of people have read the book so far, even though I haven't got an agent yet, it hasn't been published. But they, they all uh, say that uh, they like that, uh, that aspect of it, that uh, you don't know what's going to happen. And uh, so uh, I guess I'm, uh, I'm on to something here. I'm going to keep doing it that way. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, going back to your political book, I wanted to ask, um, so I think you said so, so, somewhere I saw that uh, one thing that you're interested in, in is, uh, uh, you know, the well-being of, of the people, you know, and, um, you know, this is something I've kind of thought about in that the economic measures that we look at aren't necessarily um, representative of how the people are doing, you know, um, they're... What? There's GOP, but you know, there's there's uh, GDP, um, and uh, you know, and, and I like Andrew Ling a lot. So he talks about um, about you know establishing new measures, you know, like uh, uh, quality of life, life expectancy, um, or I would even add, you know, green measures like how the environment is doing. Uh, yes, there's actually a report that comes out from the. UN every year. I forget what the name of the uh, particular committee is, but every year they look at, um, uh, they they have all sorts of criteria they look at to determine how people are doing. And that's another sequel I'm working on. Mm -hmm. It's called Capitalism, the Global Edition. And I take Thailand, Morocco, France, and Norway and look at all the uh, ways that they treat their workers and uh, the middle class to see what what we need to do as a country and uh, what what marks success for people, what makes people happy. There's a whole thing about the happiness index and I, I know that's Bhutan's thing and, and uh, I think that's good, but uh, you've got to look at ways that income inequality and things like that affect people. And uh, that's uh, they started this whole thing about 20 years ago, 10 years ago, they have now added income inequality into the picture. So. They'll have a, they'll say, uh, they have a score of one to five. They say the United States is 3.5 on this, but once you throw in income inequality, it drops it down to 2.5 mm -hmm. because we've got so much uh, prevalent uh, income inequality. So uh, to take those, uh, to take all that criteria and really narrow it down to little facets of, of uh, how we can uh, make our society better is, is is something that we should all be concentrating on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so uh, if you if you had to choose, you know, you know, one thing, or it could be multiple things uh, that that you would really want uh, people to know, uh, what would it be? Just you know about our econo political economic system. Uh, okay. Well, there's the Powell memo, as I mentioned before. That was a, a giant smoking gun to me because. Nobody ever told me about the Powell Memo. Uh, he wrote this thing in 1971, and, and uh, Nixon then uh, appointed him to the Supreme Court because he was thrilled with it. And every Republican president since Nixon has followed this blueprint to uh, take over, as I said, the conversation and to uh, make uh, business uh, the head of the country, I guess you might say, and to the exclusion of the middle class. So um, that was really important to me. And there's also something that I discovered uh, the Department of Defense has something they call the 1033 project, which uh, promotes, it tells them, uh, mandates them to uh, sell at bargain basement prices, some of their uh, uh, materials uh, to law enforcement so they can use it for, for, for going after the, originally it was for the war on drugs. And uh, so you've got the LA Unified School District here in LA that owns uh, something called an MRAP. Uh, it's, a, it's a vehicle that uh, protects you against mines. Why they would need that, I don't know. They have a couple of grenade launchers. They have all sorts of AK-47s. Why does a school district need all this stuff? And yet uh, this mandate is still in place and they're still using it to supply these uh, weapons of mass destruction <laughs> to all these um, uh, law enforcement agencies and schools and colleges. And it's it's not right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, another thing I want to ask you about is you mentioned uh, that one thing that you wrote about is uh, the criminal justice system. So uh, I want to see um, what your take was on that. The criminal injustice system? You yes, mean? the criminal injustice system. Yes, I think that we've, uh, uh, there was a lot of laws passed under Bill Clinton in 1994. Um, he was a successful president, by the way, not because he was good for the people, but because he uh, he uh, he co-opted the Republican agenda. 
-hmm. And uh, when uh, Obama was elected, he was uh, he came in and he asked Clinton for advice, and he told him to do the same thing. But they weren't going to let a black man take over their agenda. So that uh, that uh, was kind of um, kind of the the uh, death knell to uh, to Obama's uh, being able to do anything successfully. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, 1994, all these laws were passed, and they talked about how you would look look at these gang members' eyes and not see any humanity left. Mm -hmm. And uh, so they used this as a way to uh, to incarcerate more uh, people of color. And uh, now they're starting to change things. I, I guess Biden has even said that uh, he's ashamed of uh, what they passed in the 90s and that uh, they need to get back to more compassionate sentencing, leave more uh, leeway to the judges on a case by case basis uh, because um, yeah, there's too many people in prison now. I mean, we we have what a 15th of the world population, yet we've got like 25 percent of the uh, the most incarcerated people, uh, citizens. Mm -hmm. There's something wrong there. Private yeah. prisons, you know, that's that's absolutely, absolutely, yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah. So um, I think it was was it in, was it the 1994 crime bill? Was it that's the year? Yeah, yeah that, I think. I think it was maybe sometime around there, maybe before that. I think it was Biden that said, "I didn't want his kids to be in a racial jungle or something like that." Uh, yeah, but yeah, it, it uh, painted a, a real broad, in broad strokes uh, what was going on in uh, uh, communities of color, uh, and uh, things haven't really changed that much. I, when I was going to college and getting my journalism degree, I interviewed this uh, newspaper man. That had long since retired. He said back in the 60s, they were told not to cover the areas of town where, where uh, there were predominantly people of color. Mm -hmm. So they just left them to their own devices. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden, uh, with uh, the Watts riots and things like that, there, there was this uh, big focus all of a sudden on people of color, and it went from one extreme to the other. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you if you read my book, the, the, you'll see that uh, there's so many uh, things that uh, that have been unfairly focused on uh, that uh, we need to uh, have a more broad uh, base. I got a call yesterday from a, a police uh, association. I was trying to raise money, mm -hmm. and he talked about uh, uh, a defund the police. And I yep. said, "Well, hang on a minute. Uh, defunding the police doesn't mean what you're saying it means." It means that you need to reallocate sources to uh, like social workers. You don't need a gun showing up uh, all the time at a uh, d d domestic uh, dispute. You need somebody there who can calm things down. And he said, well, obviously you know more than most of the people I talk to. So thank you and have a nice day. <laughs> yeah. So. Uh, what do you think about police unions? Because I've seen some arguments that that's part of the part of the reason that a lot of these bad cops, like the one that killed George Floyd, had had uh, multiple multiple uh, had had multiple complaints against them in the past. But yeah. the argument is that these police unions protect bad cops a lot. So what do you think about that? Uh, yeah, there's this big conversation going on in the labor movement right now. Richard Trump, head of the FLCIO, came out and said it's like working with with corpora uh, corporations that you don't particularly like, but you have to get along. And uh, that that was not a strong enough statement, if you ask me. I've had uh, 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 brothers and sisters in the National Writers Union who have uh, actually wrote in, in different magazines about that issue. And uh, we have to say, no, this is wrong. You can't circle the wagons on something like this. You need to help us root out the bad ones so that the good ones aren't tainted with the same brush. And um, that, that's part of what I wrote to uh, the FLCIO. Uh, sure. Thing that I wrote to them. We need to, uh, there's got to be some reckoning. Uh, back when I was a union president, uh, the guy who was head of the whole region said, uh, we, do, we don't want to air our dirty laundry, but you need to do that. In order to expose everything to the light of day, you need to bring everything out in the open so that people can see that you're making a concerted uh, effort to change the, the paradigm. Sure, sure, uh, well said. Um, another thing I wanted to, 
to get to in the criminal uh, injustice system is the fact that you know we have so many uh, you know nonviolent you know uh, drug offenders uh, in the prisons that you know all they did you know was you know uh, maybe they sold a small amount maybe they they used a small amount and all of a sudden they're put in prison for who knows how long. Uh, right. Yeah, I, uh, in my book I also talk about that because uh, back when I was 18 years old I uh, found some I was at this amusement park where I worked. And I found some uh, drugs in the bushes, and I uh, I quickly put it in my pocket to to check out later. And mm -hmm. I went uh, to the uh, building where, where I used to work, and I was digging through this baggie to see what was in there. And right then, a cop came walking by, and uh, so I I got into, into trouble, and they didn't believe I had found them. And they thought I I brought them into the park, and I was arrested. And uh, but I was thinking, what would have happened to me if I had been a uh, person of color, would I have been mm -hmm. treated as, as as well as I was? Um, so I, I, I again think that uh, uh, the uh, the way justice is meted out is 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 uh, it needs to be looked at again. And uh, one of the things that we've done here in California is we've created the situation where we have uh, moneyless bail. In other words, uh, a lot of people who end up staying in in jail after they're arrested are people that can't afford to meet their bail. And they may be innocent, but who who gets to know that because they're sitting there in a, in a jail cell because they can't meet their bail. So uh, judges are now empowered in California to look at a case-by-case -case basis to see if, are, are they here because uh, they're a bad person or are they here because they just can't raise the money to get out. So in, in which case, uh, if they don't think they're a flight risk, the, you know, the judge could say, go ahead and let them out uh, without bail. Sure. So I, a lot of, a lot of uh, states are moving in that direction. Thank goodness. Sure. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and thankfully, a lot, a lot of states are also starting to, you know, first decriminalize and eventually legalize, you know, things like, especially like marijuana. Um, yeah. They're starting to, like, you know, here, here in Minnesota, you know, it's decriminalized. So you, you, you don't go to jail, but you do get a fine. Um, so we're kind of in that halfway in in between state. Yeah, and from what I understand, there's a move uh, at the federal level to uh, legalize it everywhere, which is what we needed in the first place. It's ridiculous that you could uh, I I could in California imbibe as much as I want, but if I go to Minnesota, I might get uh, a a ticket, and somewhere else, I mean, I actually still get arrested. Texas or someplace like that. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah, we've got to have some uniformity and things like this. Yeah, um, you know, it all started with, you know, the war, the war on drugs where, you know, all drugs, like, uh, you know, they're basically just called the same, you know, uh, all of them were basically considered as bad as like heroin or cocaine. Um, and, you know, I actually, I actually, talked about, I actually talked about this with Zach Leary, the son of Timothy Leary, uh, oh. about this and uh, the, in the way that, different drugs were kind of demonized in the past. Yes. And now they're talking about uh, legalizing mushrooms. I guess they have in the state of Washington. Mm -hmm. uh, they're talking about uh, using LSD the way it was intentionally uh, made in the beginning, which was uh, to uh, work on schizophrenia uh, with microdosing. So um, we're actually seeing some benefit now from these drugs and, and uh, not being uh, demonized. I'm glad to see that. Yeah, there's been some interesting studies on this stuff, you know, like um, like MDMA has been shown effective in like PTSD. Um, D DMT has been done in microdoses. They've, they've done studies in like rats where they do microdoses and they've actually, in small amounts, it can actually, you know, decrease like feels, feelings of anxiety in them. Um, you know, and also these things can be used for like things like alcoholism to get you off, off of that, um, which is pretty yes. interesting. Yeah. It is. So I guess there's hope for us yet. Mm -hmm. So the, the research is still kind of in the infant stage just because it's, it's still illegal. So it's kind of hard to get off the ground, but yeah. it's definitely growing. You're right. Uh, another thing that I wanted to, to get to was your, you have a dystopian novel, Worst Case Scenario, Election Night 2020. Uh, um, yes. So I wanted to ask about that. So. Well, um, I found, uh, I was reading about uh, uh, Charles Dickens and I found out that one of his most popular books, 
the Pickwick Papers was done in a serial form. So every month of this magazine would put in a couple of chapters and it really got people interested that maybe would have sat down with a big thick book uh, to, uh, to read uh, some of Dickens stuff. So what I did was uh, uh, there had already, already been talk that uh, maybe uh, Trump was not going to go peacefully, that he was going to fight it in every way he could. So mm -hmm. I said, well, what, what would that look like? So I uh, wrote uh, a worst case scenario, election night 2020. And I talk about how he uh, declares martial law and takes over the country. And uh, the only people that are up against him are all these American Indian tribes. So mm -hmm. they uh, f form a, an army to go up against them. And uh, meanwhile, back in DC, uh, one of the joint chiefs of staff uh, decides that uh, this guy's dangerous, that he's going to possibly ruin our country. So he decides to uh, uh, put in his lot with the American Indians to uh, overturn everything. And uh, election night came along. So I said, well, that's the end of the book. I didn't really finish it. It's still hanging out there. Mm -hmm. I hope to turn it into a graphic novel because I, I think that would be pretty interesting. But uh, then the reality came along and it, it, it dwarfed what I had uh, written because yep. uh, things were so much more worse than we thought. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, 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 the Capitol riots were an, an interesting turn of events that I don't, that I don't think I, I would have seen coming, you know. Right. That was an interesting thing. Uh, the, the interesting th thing was with Trump, you know, obviously it appears that he, he was inciting violence before that, you know. Um, yes, it was. But the, the problem with the problem with the way you phrased it is because every time he says something is it doesn't it doesn't really land either way. Like you flip a coin and it could land heads or tails, but his like the coin always lands like right on the edge. So like hey. pe people on the right they'll go, you know, he was actually he actually meant this. He did, wasn't actually calling for this. And people on the left are like, well, he was explicitly calling for violence, but really the that that dual meaning is I would say it's. It, it's either intentional or he just naturally talks wishy-washy like that, um, but which is an, an interesting thing. Well, I don't think we should uh, un, un, uh, we should not underestimate him. I think that uh, he's a master of manipulation. Sure. I think that uh, th this whole thing with uh, writing that line, what what he why he was so successful. This just came to me yesterday. Was because. He appealed to people's emotions and their mm -hmm. fear. He talked about uh, they, they're coming to kill you from Mexico. They're 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 rapists and murderers. Mm -hmm. And this was what people were thinking. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I talked to my brother yesterday. He ended up hanging up on me because I asked him if he was a Trumper. I had never really broached that subject with him. And I, he said yes. And I said why? He said because he wants to protect my rights. He's a big gun nut. Mm -hmm. He carries a, a gun with him all the time. Mm -hmm. And so when you appeal to those fears, I mean, look at the NRA. How many decades now have they been saying the Democrats are coming to take your guns? Mm -hmm. And yet nobody's even suggested that in reality. And uh, so if you play to people's fears, then you're dealing with their emotions. You're not dealing with facts. And facts can't deal with emotions. It, it's like apples and oranges. You can't argue across, the, uh, across that great divide there because you're not dealing with the, the same set of uh, uh, facts or the same set of emotions because mm -hmm. uh, emotions are so personal. Mm -hmm. So yeah. I think that's where the breakdown's been. Yeah, he knows exactly what to say, you know, because, you know, as his, his history and, you know, he's in 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 Hollywood on his TV show, um, he's he, he knows a lot of a lot of different celebrities and, you know, he, he knows exactly how to manipulate the media to to make sure that people uh, tune in, you know, he says, he says just the, the most extreme things because, and then that that gets some more media media attention. So, like in 2016, one of the reasons that he was getting so popular and he was raising to the top of the of all the Republican candidates is because he would say all these things. He'd get like basically free media attention. You know, no, no, no publicity is bad publicity, and so it, it rose in the top, got more attention, and uh, landed on the nomination. I've but, talked to friends in other countries about. Uh, they said, how could this have happened that he got elected? And I pointed out to them that uh, Ronald Reagan had this whole tough guy image from TV. Uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger, 
his movies, Mr. Tough Guy, and then um, Trump, Mr. Tough Guy. So a lot of people buy into that image of that person, even though it may have absolutely nothing to do with the real person. And uh, uh, I don't know, uh, maybe we just have a, a fascination or, uh, yeah, a fascination with uh, this whole uh, tough guy image and, and they, we think that they're gonna save us, that they're gonna take us to the promised land, so to speak. Yeah, he, he knows how to brand himself in just the right way. Uh, you know, he behaves out really like this. Um, uh, inside, I don't know, I don't know really how he is on the inside, but you know, um, I think, at least, I think he knows how to be, but he intentionally behaves uh, uh, badly just because, you know, Joe Biden recently said that he left a nice letter, apparently, uh, when, yeah. so, um, you know, you know, he knows how to be, but he doesn't for some reason. Um, it's because, he, you know, he tries to ma manipulate emotions, you know, he thinks he's narcissistic. Definitely, and he's uh, a paranoid schizophrenic, if you ask me. Sure. This whole birther thing and all that. Uh, they were, I don't think there's been a conspiracy he didn't like. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, what was I going to say? Um, I was something about something about Donald Trump. Um, oh. Yeah, I hate when that happens. <laughs> I just see it happens to younger people as well as us older people. Yeah. <laughs> I sure think about something else, and then um, it was well. If I can make a plug for my book, my book is available sure. on Amazon and also Barnes and Noble, and through my publisher, uh, and uh, it's uh, doing pretty good considering it's been out for a little over a year now, and. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I, I'm trying desperately to get into the hands of people like you because um, it, 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 otherwise it's not going to do any good. I could, I wrote the book, but the book needs to get into the hands of the, the right people who could make change. Yes. Go ahead. I just, I just thought of it. Um, so, you know, obviously one, uh, one, of, the, one of the problems that uh, we're seeing um, is um, with, you know, uh, is, is this, this corporate media that, you know, that we see um, just another one of the corporations uh, that, you know, they're get, they're doing, they're doing news just for clicks, you know, just to get money. So uh -huh. what, what's your thoughts on a solution to that? Mine is possibly like a national news thing, because instead of, instead of doing news for money, you're doing it, you're, you're already getting a certain amount of money. And then and, and then you don't really have that monetary incentive. You're, you just want to report the news. Like for example, um, the C-SPAN, you know, it's all it is is simply, you know, shows the House of Representatives in the Senate. Um, and, you know, it's not as exciting to watch, but, you know, it, it doesn't do it for money. It... Right, I, I remember thinking when I was like five years old, why, why is this newscaster telling me I should buy a Timex watch? Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and I never understood why they're part of the Nielsen ratings. It doesn't make any sense. But uh, on the other hand, uh, so yeah, we have to move away from the, the corporate model, you're right, uh, mm -hmm. because it's all about selling stuff. And a lot of people to talk about the left-wing media. There is no such thing as a left-wing media. Uh, mm -hmm. Some come close to that, but it's all commercial. It's all about making money. And if you can move away from that model, yes, you're right. Uh, mm -hmm. One of, the, of the, the best sources of news these days, the most uh, 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 objective would be uh, Al Jazeera, which mm -hmm. uh, puts people on the right into a tizzy that, that uh, we would be touting Al Jazeera. But uh, they, they don't try to read anything into it. Uh, it's, we had the Fairness Doctrine up until Reagan. The Fairness Doctrine said, well, if you're going to espouse this, you need to have somebody on the other side uh, rebutting you on that. And when we got rid of the fairness doctrine that uh, created this whole thing with Fox News and now OAN and, and uh, it, all it has done is dr driven a wedge between folks and in uh, and, and, uh, society. And, and uh, we have to get back to being able to have a, a conversation. As I mentioned with my brother yesterday, he ended up hanging up on me because he couldn't he couldn't talk about it in a way 
they didn't trigger his emotions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, I don't know, I don't know if my if my solution is is the right way. I'm just you know, just you know, spitballing here. But you yeah. know, it seems like right now, you know, everyone's got like their own news sources that they go to, and you know, it used to be basically there was. A, you know, a couple channels to choose from, you know, everyone watched like, you know, Walter Cronkite or whoever it may be. Um, you know, everyone watched Johnny Carson. Yeah. Was that? It was a lot easier when we only had three channels. Yeah, it was. <laughs> <laughs> now there's, now there's hundreds of channels plus all the streaming services. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And I, I, uh, you're, I think you're on the right track there with your idea of uh, mm -hmm. making it so that it's more, but then you can run into the situation where for instance, what's happening in Myanmar right now, mm -hmm. they actually, their internet cut off. And so uh, there's not a lot of stuff getting out about what's going on in, in Myanmar because um, they control the media. And that's a, uh, that's a scary situation, which is why you need to have a free and independent media. Mm -hmm. So, um, uh, PBS. I, I'm uh, on the community advisory board of my local PBS station. Yeah. And one of the things that they've complained about is uh, all the stuff on regular news where you you do car chases and, and you talk about entertainment instead of what's really going on in the world. And mm -hmm. uh, so we we need uh, several different voices, but uh, I'm not sure what we could do about the real vitriolic ones. Back in uh, FDR's time, there was a uh, Reverend Charles Coughlin. He's the one that mm -hmm. said we need a social security system. But mm -hmm. then he started he started uh, veering off into uh, anti-Semitism and, and things like that. And uh, FDR, despite the fact that being our most uh, progressive president, he ended mm -hmm. up getting making sure this guy got taken off the air. Yeah. Even then, we saw uh, people who were. Um, not saying the right things or, or being inflammatory, being taken off the air. So this whole thing with uh, with uh, Trump and his Twitter uh, Twitter account is not something new. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Maybe the solution is maybe more a switch to more local type news. You know, um, yeah, like maybe PBS stations or here we, we have like Care Eleven, which is more of a Minnesota based thing, kind of based huh. kind of branches from NBC a little bit. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think uh, you guys are so ahead of the, the uh, curve in a lot of ways. Uh, I really miss Paul Wellstone. Mm -hmm. He was a voice of reason. Even even uh, the, the wrestler, what's his name? Uh, Jesse Cole. Ventura. Oh, Jesse Ventura, yeah. I always get those two uh, mixed up. Uh, <laughs> yeah, he was, our, but, he was our governor for a while. Yeah, he's, he's a voice of reason in a lot of mm -hmm. cases. And, yeah. Uh, so I really appreciate what you guys are trying to accomplish. Mm -hmm. Sure, sure. Um, so is there, uh, is, there, is there anything that uh, I haven't asked or we haven't mentioned yet that uh, you'd like to talk about? Or? You know, it's interesting. I, uh, the subtitle of my book is 25 Ways the System is Rigged Against You. And nobody in all the interviews I've done has asked me what those 25 ways were. <laughs> so what I say is, uh, there's at least one in every chapter. So mm -hmm. if you read the book, you'll find them all. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's things like the criminal justice system, the healthcare mm -hmm. have and have nots, uh, homelessness, uh, uh, housing, uh, uh, the, uh, all those things are in there. And uh, it's, it's really easy to see that uh, how, our, uh, how, how our society has been manipulated for the rich and the powerful and uh, how we need to, mm -hmm. to get that back. Sure. So, um, so where can people find you if they want to learn more? Uh, uh, I'm on Facebook. Uh, I did have a uh, page uh, called Capitalism Killed the Middle Class mm -hmm. and uh, where I was uh, updating things that, that I brought up in my book as uh, different uh, things come in, uh, those issues. Uh, but uh, somebody hacked my account, so I don't know if I can ever get that page back. But I could be reached, uh, Dan McCrory, uh, in numerous ways. I've mm -hmm. got uh, a author's page on Amazon also. Mm -hmm. I know that's the, the big uh, the big no-no now is, is Amazon because it, it becomes such a behemoth. But mm -hmm. uh, I'm glad to see that uh, uh, Bezos, I think it is, is uh, yeah. backing away. And uh, 
And um, so I, 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 anybody that wants to reach me, I, I'd love to talk about the issues. Mm -hmm. And um, they can, uh, I'm real easy to find. Okay. And uh, as you said, uh, your book is available in Barnes Noble, Amazon. Uh, yes. Yeah. Um, so unless you have anything else, um, I think that'll, that'll wrap it up for today. You've been listening to Point Counterpoint with your host, Chris Wright, and... Dan McCorry. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Thanks.